There's uh, copies of Psalm 48 back on the table back there in large print for sore eyes or whatever. You can grab those back there. Let's pray. Well, thank you so much for warm clothes and warm houses and for hot water. And um, We are so grateful for all those things. Those who found difficulties this morning, Lord, we're grateful that uh, there were other things they could do to continue to maintain. And we pray, Father, that you give us patience in the midst of all the, the weather this next couple of days. We pray for all the first responders out right now braving the cold, even OG&E where the power goes out, being out in this windshield, Lord. We are so grateful for those who, who are there, the police officers, sheriffs, deputies, firefighters, IMSA, all of them who are out braving this. We thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you for blessing us. Help us as we get into Psalm 48 and enrich our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, there's... Uh, Handouts for or just Psalm 48 is back there in larger print on the back table. Of course, I had Presbyterian jokes running through my head this morning. Something about this puts a whole new meaning to Frozen Chosen, but I didn't want to say that to you. So, it would have just been inappropriate. We have no sense of humor. So, we're working our way, still working our way through the Psalms and... Last week we did Psalm 47, we did Psalm 46 for the New Year's Day sermon. Um, and so Psalm 48 is where we are today, and I'm calling it Hemming, Hemming Our God. And I found out that that's actual literal verb, so it was good. I, didn't turn a, I did not turn a noun into a verb, so Hemming Our God, <clears throat> Psalm 48. So the way it's going to break down, if you look at Psalm 48, well, actually, let me just read it first, and then we'll do the, the outline. So when we start out the psalm, when it has printed here in your English, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, what is that? What is that telling you? Yeah, it's God's personal name, Yahweh. By the way, this morning in the sermon... When we read Isaiah 64, it's going to be, Lord is going to be printed normal, capital L, little O, little R, little D, and God will be printed in all caps, capital G, capital O, capital D. Because in the Hebrew, it's Adonai Yahweh, Lord God. So just let you know, because I'll mention that again. So here we are, Psalm 48, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling to cold of them there. Anguish is of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard... So have we seen in the city of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. So as we're reading Psalm 48, anything to stick out, maybe some repeated uh, concepts in Psalm 48, things that may be connected your, in your mind to possibly the last two Psalms, Psalm 46, 47, anything? Yes. Um, in many ways, it's identical. It's the same. No, it's identical. But it becomes Mount Zion often becomes, um, you know, like we, if you said, uh, if you talk about the capital, right? So, well, this is what happened at the capital. You mean the state. I mean, there's a sense in which you mean that place but it also impacts the whole state. And so you're, and sometimes you can use the word capital, the capital for Oklahoma or something, you know. Same thing with the White House or whatever. So Zion becomes figurative for all of the people of God in places. And that moves over then when you come to the New Testament and how it gets used. Does that make sense? 
Anybody else? Anything you see repeats, refrains, repeated concepts? What's the theme? What seems to be the theme of the psalm? Yeah. Right. But notice there's other, another aspect. What's the other aspect? It's greater than the Lord. Praise Him. What's the other aspect? There's another aspect, and I'll give you a hint. It's a place. Yeah, Mount Zion. The city of the great king. Jerusalem, right? And so there's a connection here. We'll get into this a little bit more. Good. So here's how I'm breaking this out. It's just going by paragraphs, but thinking about hymning our God. As I was working through this, these hymns, all these hymns kept coming up as I was working through. So I'm going to use them as titles for our, our points. A bulwark never failing, verses 1 through 3. A bulwark, by the way, is the fortress uh, walls around a city or it's a security place in the city. A bulwark never failing. Anybody remember what hymn that is? A mighty fortress, right. Verses 4 through 8. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Verses 9 through 11. Praise waits for thee in Zion. And then verses 12 through 14. Here I raise my Ebenezer. It worked for me. Well, I'll see if it works for you. So just a reminder again, so it appears that Psalm 46 through 48 are related to a specific situation or a set of conditions that looks very close to the incident in first, it's first, second Kings, sorry, not first Kings, second Kings 18 and 19, when Sennacherib was besieging Jerusalem and Lachish, and he's, and he's got his army around Jerusalem and he's taunting Hezekiah, the people, why are you trusting Hezekiah? And why dare you trust the God of Hezekiah? Because no God has withstood me. I'm greater than all gods. Boom. Right? And then he sends the letter and, Heze and uh, saying the same thing. And then Hezekiah takes the letter into the temple, rolls it out in prayer in front of God. And he says, you see what he says, Lord? And then the Lord answers his prayer, destroys Sinatra's, uh ability to fight a war, knocks out 185,000 of his soldiers overnight, which is a huge number. No matter how big his army was, it's still a huge number. And uh, then Sinatra is sent home packing with his tail between his legs. So Psalm 46, 47, and 48 seem to be revolving around either that circumstance or one similar to it. Does that make sense? Okay. And so Psalm 46, possibly, probably during the siege itself. Psalm 47, which we looked at last week, after God's promises and maybe during the fulfillment of God's promise about uh, defeating Sennacherib. And now Psalm 48, shortly after, uh, shortly following Sennacherib's defeat and retreat. And now it's walking around Jerusalem, looking at Jerusalem and saying, we survived! We survived! Right? And so seeing the wall still there, and so on. Because what would happen if Sinatra had, uh, what's, what would likely have happened if Sinatra had continued his onslaught of Jerusalem in the end? He would have won. Yeah, would have destroyed everything, which is what, yeah, not, about a hundred years later, Nebuchadnezzar will come and do that, knock holes in the wall and stuff, but everything is still standing, okay? And then again, as I mentioned last week, as this psalm begins, it says a song of Korah. Remember the Korah's family history. It's not a very positive history in number 16. Korah led the rebellion. And so he's always remembered um, as that way, the rebelliousness of Korah. Woe to them, for they walked in the ways of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. And yet you come to this psalm and you realize... Here's a bright spot. Korah is actually, Korah's family is actually leading us in worship. Okay? And because they're faithful. They've thrown off the rebelliousness. Alright, all that just leading up. Here we go. So, a bulwark never failing. Verses 1 through 3. So, look at how these verses relate and tell me how they relate back to Psalm 46 and 47. And they do. Let me read it again while you think about it. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Now how do those three verses relate back to Psalm 47 and 46? 
Okay. Yeah, made himself known as the fortress, right? Very good. So Psalm 46, also uh, verse 7 and verse 11, um, where it says, um, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, right? So it said twice in Psalm 46. And here's God now, after the defeat of Sennacherib, he's made himself known as our fortress here. Okay, where else? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the city of the great king, uh, chapter 47, verse 2. The Lord of the high, the, uh, Yahweh, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then verse 7, he's a great king. Uh, then 7 and 8. Yeah. Sits enthroned in his holy temple. What else? Any other connections? What, there are some more, but. Yeah, that's interesting, man. Well, good. So I just want you to see the connection. So this does look like this is there's some intentional connection back and forth between Psalm 46, 47, and 48. They do belong together. Um, so notice the language, the holy mountain, elevation, Mount Zion. Stephen a- Steve asked the question already about the connection between uh, Zion and Jerusalem. And there is that huge connection it has to do with the temple being there but then it becomes uh, zion becomes figurative as you go down the road as you look into the prophets and stuff it becomes figurative of the actual the the throne of god and the place where god from which god rules and so forth but notice this language this holy mountain uh beautiful for elevation mount zion notice the upward motion or movement or trajectory of Holy Mountain, Elevation, Mount Zion. Jerusalem is up on a mountain. In fact, everybody in their right minds put all of their cities up on mountains. And then they had this little bitty path down the mountain, so that way if you came at them with an army, you had a little bitty path and you had to go uphill. Right? So just think about defensive, defensively, that was a smart thing to do. When Anna and I went to, um, all, when we were stationed in Turkey, as we lived in Turkey, every old castle from the from pre-roman to roman um the hittites everybody's palace was up high if they if it was a flat land they looked for an outcropping and put a actually put a, a castle on top of an outcropping when everything else was flat so they could see from a distance that it was hard to conquer the the castle does that make sense and so it was like that when we went to greece the same thing the acropolis the temple itself, the Acropolis, that's the Greek word for high place. And so it is a high place. It's one of the highest, it is the highest spot in the city of Athens. You go to Corinth, the same thing. And so it was very normal. And so it's very fitting. It's just kind of one of those things where you see, oh, Holy Mountain, Elevation, Mountain Zion. Now Jerusalem was up. Okay, and so all of that is, uh, is accurate. And I think it's just a subtle hint at some of the accuracy of Scripture that's very subtle and just we would think almost just throwaway lines. Well, it's just a mountain, yeah. But I think that adds to the evidence of the authenticity and historicity of Scripture. Uh, the city of our God becomes the place for what? What does the city of God become the place for? As you look at verses 1 through 3. Huh? Worship. So verse 1, great is, is Yahweh greatly to be praised in the city of God. Um, anybody else? Anything else you see there? Yeah. Which goes along with something we looked at last week about when God is exalted, God exalts Himself to show us mercy, Isaiah 20, uh, 33 or whatever it was. You know, so that exalting is part of our assurance, you know. So yes, that elevation. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good.
Very good. So the city becomes a place for worship. So what has God done? We've already mentioned this, but it's worth asking again. What has God done within her citadels? Okay. Okay. What else? As a fort, he's made himself known as a fortress in the citadel, in, the, in the, the most secure part of the city. He's made himself known by his action, by what he's done, that he is the fortress, which goes back to chapter 47 and 46 and so forth. Very good. So I think it's a great, a great reminder as you look at this is after the conflict is over and after Sennacherib is left and the people don't walk around, or, or at least Korah will not let them walk away and go, whew, man, look at how strong we are. Right? He actually draws them in to say, no, look at how strong your God is. Don't forget who it was who delivered you. Does that make you see that? Okay? And so I think it's very fitting, my title, A Bulwark Never Failing, the God who made himself known as our fortress. Okay? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Come and help me out. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. I don't know, I was singing that after I got done with the first three verses as I was putting this together. I thought, how fitting. A bulwark never failing. He made himself known as our fortress in the city. Woo! There's a Steve for you. Woo! All right. You called Steve a horse? He's, oh, he is horse. Oh, 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 I got it. I got it. <laughs> and so then comes verses 4 through 8 uh, oh for a thousand tongues to sing and I want you to imagine waking up the very next morning after the letter has been sent and Hezekiah has gone and prayed rolled out the letter and prayed heard the promise um, and then they wake up the next morning and they walk out on the ramparts of the, of the city still thinking they're under siege and they see for, uh, 2 Kings 19, verse 35 and 36, that that night the angel of, of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. I mean, you think about like Gettysburg. I mean, there was not 185,000 guys that died on the battlefield. There were tens of thousands. And it was, it was traumatizing to those who looked out on the battlefield. And that was just tens of thousands. Imagine you look out on the ramparts, and it looks like a whole section of Sinatra's army is wiped out overnight, instantaneously. Boom, they're dead. Imagine, what would you do? I mean, how would you... What, wow, there'd be a like, woo! Right? Okay, so think about then verses 4 through 8, especially... Um, Verses 4 through 7, it, wouldn't it feel something like verses 4 through 7? For behold, the kings assembled, they, gathered, they came together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded, they were in panic, they took to flight. I mean, imagine at this point, Sennacherib has already packed his bags and he is moving out, deploying back home. Trembling took hold of them there, anguishes of a woman in labor. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. I mean, imagine, you look out on the ramp from the ramparts, you see all these dead bodies out there of all these soldiers who are about to take you out, and it, looked, it would feel something like the relief you could hear in verses 4 through 7. You see that? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's, I mean, it doesn't happen immediately, but some years later, his sons will kill him. You know, because there is this upsetting of power within the royal family even, right? Yeah. So it's interesting, by the way, if you, uh, you can find all this stuff pretty easy 
uh, Sinatra was a bra- was a braggart. He loved, like most kings, loved to brag about all the ways he saved his country and all these great things he did. He's always talking about his his feats of success. Well, guess what's not in all of his records that are carved into stone or put into clay tablets? Guess what's not in there? This moment right here, when he lost huge. There's no recording of losses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Without a battle. There's no mention of that. So I love the way Ralph Davis puts it in his little, his new uh, installment on his Psalms series. It's uh, on verses, on Psalm 38 through 51. Ralph Davis says this, In this sad, uh, in this sad, vicious, Yahweh-hating world, deliverance often involves destruction, else there is no deliverance. It was bad news for Sinatra. It was good news for God's people. Right? There was no deliverance for Hezekiah unless Sinatra's power was destroyed. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about spin. But I mean, it's just like Oklahoma City's proper is like five or 600,000 people. I mean, 185,000 people dead tomorrow. I mean, you just think about this, what that means. I mean, you, you're not going to hide dead bodies at that point, right? Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. Where'd they go? All right. Yeah, Egypt was devastated, right? And I think that's, so, uh, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I know that sometimes people perceive the Old Testament as being hugely violent. And yet, when you're facing evil, the, in the end, very often, the only way for there to be deliverance for someone is defeat of someone else. Does that make sense? And so it's not an unjust thing, okay? It's not a, not a bad thing when that happens for God's people. All right, and so, so for example, Zeus was running around in his squad car. Wee! He gets a call in that somebody's beating the snot out of this woman. I mean, somebody's going to lose there, right? To rescue the woman, somebody is going to lose. It's going to be the bad guy, and he's got to go to jail. Yes, it's not going to be Moose. This is my nightstick. Say hi to my nightstick. Yeah. Great. Okay. So it seems to me, verse 7, the ships of Tarshish, the east wind destroying the ships of Tarshish. I just want to bring this up. I think that that's an emblematic verse, not a necessarily a literal uh, what actually happened, that it's emblematic or illustrative, that Sinatra did not pull up a navy. I'm trying to think in Jerusalem, the only way a navy would have worked is if coming from the Mediterranean Sea, but there's still a long distance from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean Sea for the troops to march. And yet, so you wonder, why, is there, why does the writer talk about ships being destroyed by an east wind? I think it's an illustrative. It was that instantaneous, like a nor'easter came in and sank all the ships. It was just like that for Sinatra. It just came in, boom, and he was sunk. I think that's the point, or what verse 7 is getting across. Now, if you want to argue with me and say there were ships involved, fine, whatever. I mean, really. But I think that that, even if there was, it's illustrative of what God did and why they're singing His praises at this point. Yes? Yeah. Ships. Yeah. Yeah, right. And I think that's that's I think that's why that's there the, the way it's set up. It, it doesn't use similar language, the word like or as in the Hebrew or the English. Um, so it's not a simile, but it's more of a. I, I think it's just illustrative. It was just it was 
this is what it was it looked like to us okay so we're back to the city of Yahweh of hosts in verse 8 the unmoved city so in verse 8 as we've heard so have we seen in the city of Yahweh of hosts in the city of our God which God will establish forever think back to Psalm 46 go back to Psalm 46 here Notice that in verse 3, the, uh, the waters roar and foam, that the mountains mot, M-O-T is what you transliterate that Hebrew word into English, mot, they tremble. Okay, the mountains tremble um, at its swelling. And then you go down to verse 6, mot is used again. The nations rage, the kingdoms mot, the kingdoms totter, they're moved. And yet there's one thing that is unmoved. Verse 5, same Hebrew word, God will help her I'm sorry, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Creation may totter and sway back and forth, the nations foaming and roaring and tottering back and forth, and yet the city of our God, because God is in the midst of her, the city of our God is unmoved. So you go back to Psalm 48 and verse 8, and there it is. Yes, this is exactly what happened. Um, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. She was unmoved when everything else was moving. It's a, I mean, it helps when you, when you think about that and then you go back to what Jesus says about the church. Right? So, I build my church on this foundation. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When you think about Ephesians chapter uh, 4, Paul says the reason why there's apostles, prophets, why, why the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers were given to the church was to build her up, strengthen her, help her to become um, um, the, the church to, be, to serve, to be involved in ministry. But then it says, so that we're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So the church is unmoved. Okay, The city of our God is established forever. Any questions at this point? Anything? Ah, there we go. So let's take a moment, a momentary side, side glance at a biblical concept we need to always recall. So if this is about, if this is about the situation what happened with Sinatra and the Assyrians, we need to take a step back just for a moment. And I want us to Flip over to Isaiah chapter, hold this passage, but go to Isaiah chapter 10, verses 12 through 9. So if you were to go and read 2 Kings 18 and 19, one of the things that Sennacherib says in his boastfulness is he says, God sent me to do these things. Right? It's really interesting um, that he actually makes that statement that God had actually sent him to do the destruction of the nations and especially to attack Jerusalem, Judah, and so forth. And so, when you get to Isaiah 10, verses 12 through 19, notice what happens. When the Lord was finished, has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. So before that, he's talking about how he's going to send the Assyrians against Jerusalem to discipline Jerusalem. He's going to send Sennacherib. And so here, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like, has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples. As the one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth, and there are none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And then God says, Shall the axe boast of over him who hews with it? Who's the axe in this scenario? Sinatra and the Assyrians. God's instrument. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord Yahweh 
of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire and the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day and the glory of his force and of his fruitful land Yahweh will destroy both soul and body and it will be as when a sick man wastes away the remnant of the trees of his force will be so uh, will be so few that a child can write them down. I just want to draw in that there was a sense in which Sinatra was correct. He was sent by God. He was, he was God's instrument of justice and discipline upon God's people, His wayward people. Okay, And so he was right to say that. He was wrong in his boastfulness. I'm stronger than every other God and even Yahweh. Right? And so God takes the instrument that He uses and He is not... He, he is not um, reticent to break the instrument he uses. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 And I think that that should encourage us. There is a way in which uh, there are times when you wonder what in the world is going on in the world, for example, and you remember, no, 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 Isaiah 10. God may be using instruments to discipline other people. He may be bringing justice to bear where there's injustice. But that doesn't mean that the instrument He's using is sinless and will not itself be judged at some point. That's important to remember. Okay? Um, yeah, there you go. So that's a side note. I wanted to go there. Any questions before we move on? Yes. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, there's more we could say, but there's, uh, there's also God's faithful people in the midst of the covenant people who weren't being so faithful. And so even God's faithful people are, suffer under the discipline, right? And so it's not that believe in Jesus will take care of all your problems, you'll never have a problem, right? There's, there is a sense in which God's people will suffer with, you know, even with unbelievers. I mean, you think about if we were to be attacked as a country... Right? For whatever reason that God has in His plans, if we were attacked and it became devastating, we're suffering right along with the pagans. It doesn't mean that God hates us. Right? So there's that trust aspect. We come back to, no, we can trust God in the midst of the most difficult and terrible na international, national situation. Is that what you're kind of addressing? Yeah, yeah, it is. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Yes. No, perfect. And so verses 4 through 8 is, you know, here's this victory. This is what it looks like. And um, there's a sense of praise. So the fact that as we have heard, so have we seen in the city of Yahweh of hosts and the city of our God, which God will establish forever. There's a sense in which this continues that whole praise. And so that hymn, O for a thousand tongues to sing. So I won't sing this one, okay, because it's a little bit longer. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. He speaks in listening to His voice, new life the dead receive, the mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. Hear Him, ye deaf, His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. It's that kind of sentiment in verses 4-8, through eight, so... That hymn was also ringing in my head as I was looking at the, those verses. And then comes another hymn that was ringing in my head verses, for verses 9 through 11. Praise waits for thee in Zion. So look at verses 9 through 11. Notice that more jubilation erupts. We have, thought on your, we have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. 
Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. So notice that jubilation erupts even more in verses 9-11. through 11. So what are God's people doing and where are they doing it? Verses 9-11. through 11. Now they're in the temple. That's one place, yes, especially in the temple. What are they doing? Yeah. 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 So contemplating on his steadfast love. I was in a auto accident. I've told you this before. It was an auto accident years ago. I was in a government car. I was going to Oxford, Mississippi. It was 6 o'clock in the morning. It was raining. And somehow I thoughtlessly turned on cruise. Never turn on the cruise when the streets are, are wet. Okay? It, huh? It was cold, but it was wet. It was raining. Because if you put on the cruise, then when you start to hydroplane, your car just shoots forward like a rocket. And so that's what happened. I was cruising along. I hit a, uh, hit a bridge that had a little rise to it, which brought my wheels off the road just enough that I started hydroplaning. The car does a 180, and I slam into the, the guardrail. And all I can pray, and it's just a shout, Oh God, oh God, oh God! You know, that's all I said, right? And I mean, I'm going from, I went from 60 to when... The car went around. I'm sure Derek could tell me the physics of this. When the car flipped around, I must have been doing all of a sudden 80 or 90 backwards, right? Come around the side of the bridge, the guardrail, and it's a slope on the other side. And I just, it keeps on going another 180, just like this. And I go down the guardrail, miss some trees that had fallen that were poking out just like this, right? I missed them. Went right between these two trees that were down like this, rammed sideways into a tree, Dirt, windshield, glass, everything flew, and I was covered in mud and all that other stuff. And so I stopped. First thing I did is I, okay, no blood, arms, legs. I did, I literally, I did this. Arms, I feel my toes. Okay, so then I get out of the car, and I just turn around, I look, and there's those two tree branches that went right between. And all I could do is just go, Wow. I think it's the same kind of thing. We thought on your steadfast love. Look at what happened. See the 185 dead out there. You've delivered us. Wow. You ever been in a moment like that where you just go, wow. And all you can think about is how, how amazing and how good God was to you at that moment. And so it's that same kind of thought, right? So it's, we thought on your steadfast love. What else are the people of God doing in verses 9 through 11? Yeah. And they're seeing the far-reaching ramifications of what's happened here as your name is in all the earth so your righteous, uh, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Even if Sennacherib is, is bemoaning the fact you destroyed his people, there's a sense in which his pagan grief is praise. Right? Even your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Okay? Right, so then they're singing, right? They're starting to rejoice when you look at verses 9-11. to so if God has been victorious here in Jerusalem, in Zion, and He's liberated His people in these precincts in the city of Jerusalem, and if He is not bound by human territories and fences, as Sennacherib said He was, then the logic of verse 10 is very, very clear. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. So it's God's praise was not just happening right there, right? So it is beyond that. He's not bound. He's not a territorial God like Sinatra's gods were, okay? And so the logic of verse 10 works out. Eternal or, or, or universal. Yeah. Yeah. But as we'll get into the next few verses, the fact that it happened here will always be remembered and is instructive to not think of just it happening here, but to realize the universal aspect of it. Every tongue will confess. Preach it. And so, 
Praise waits for thee in Zion. All men shall worship there and pay their vows before thee, O God, who hears prayer. Our sins rise up against us, prevailing day by day, but thou wilt show us mercy and take their guilt away. And so then, uh, verses 12 through 14, Ebenezer is what I'm calling this. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Let me explain an Ebenezer very quickly here, I think. Um, so this is a monument, a memorial that's at Honey Springs, Oklahoma, which is memorializing. Uh, there's a, this is the Confederate side, but there's also a Union side. The Native Americans from the five civilized tribes and a couple others who fought in the Civil War at the Honey Springs battlefield. And so they put up this monument it, by the way, you, you need to go to Honey Springs Battlefield. It was really good. It's an, it's an excellent tourist um, uh, uh, office that's there, uh, just interactive stuff to do. And then you can go out and tour the, the battlefield. There's lots of history, more than I ever knew. And I grew up in Oklahoma. So here's this monument, right? It's memorializing what happened so that we don't, what? Forget, right? And so... Uh, memorial mo monuments and historical markers. Uh, my favorite was the fact when we were traveling this last vacation, we found out there was a great naval battle of Oklahoma. What? It was some, some Union ship that, the, that uh, Stan Wadey and some of his guys attacked. And it was a kind of a limping along ship on the Arkansas and they blew it up. And that was the great naval battle of Oklahoma. I was like, who would have thought? That's amazing. So I had their hand up. I saw a hand. Yes. Yeah, well, we do have the Coast Guard here, yes. At Tinker Air Force Base, yeah. So, I just want to put this in here because I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But now, look at verses 12 through 14. What do Zion and her citadels, what are they being made into in verses 12 through 14? And how do you know? Yeah, yeah, they're being made into a memorial, right? So they're being made, the, the, the walls of Jerusalem, the fact that God delivered us, we're going to make now the walls of Jerusalem a memorial or a historical marker so we don't forget. Every time we see the walls, well, yeah, you remember when Sinatra was besieging us? You see that, you see the, the burn stuff over here where they were trying to burn the wall over here? Or you see where they were trying to break into the wall over there and they never succeeded. You see that? Remember what happened? Remember how God succeeded? Right? That's that kind of thing. Yes. More on that in a minute. But very good. Yes. Absolutely. So the city is becoming a memorial. Okay? It is becoming the historical marker. Uh, so in 1 Samuel 7, God, uh, God's rescue of His people of 1 Samuel 7 was memorialized by Samuel uh, with a stone as they were, as they were uh, uh, responding to an attack by the Philistines and they actually had success. Then it says, when they came to the end of the day and the end of the battle, it says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now Yahweh has helped us. He puts this stone up there so every time you walk by that stone, you remember, oh, you know what? God actually rescued our forebearers here. It becomes a stone, a, a memorial marker. Does that make sense? And that's what the Korah and the, the sons of Korah are wanting uh, Jerusalem to be, is that kind of, of a marker. Okay? Um, so anything else you see in there as you look at verses 12? Oh, oh, so um, we'll come back to the next generation in just a minute, but, but Alan's exactly right. It's the fact that... Um, when it says at the end of verse 13 that you may tell the next generation that this is God. I think that's important for us to remember that Christianity, that God's, God's people are always meant to take, to take who God is and what they've learned about God and, and what He has done is doing will do for His people and are always meant to receive it, always meant to own it, and always meant to pass it on. Ours is a faith meant to be passed on. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Good. And so, in the hymn, and you all know this hymn, 
talk about here I raise my Ebenezer. Now you know. An Ebenezer is a stone of memorial. It's a memorial marker. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus saw me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed His precious blood. Very good. So we're going to take this home. The Psalm 48 leads us to take God's local victories, what happens in our moment, in our lives, to lift up our eyes to the future and to celebrate His coming final triumph. Psalm 48 should bring you to go, oh, and when Jesus returns, this is what the victory is going to be like. We're going to remember this forever. Right? So it should always bring you to, to look that way. So the local victories, when the times that God does sing things close to home should lift your hearts. Psalm 48 is guiding us to lift our hearts and look forward to what He's going to do at the end. Right? And our confidence is always there. So embrace the physical reminders of God's redemption and God's emancipation. What are some of the physical reminders that Jesus gave us, the memorial stones, if you will, of His redemption and His emancipation? Huh? The Lord's table, Lord's supper. What else? Baptism. Embrace those. Right? It's part of, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here's what you've done for me. And I've been baptized and that marks me for the rest of my days. That, that you are the redeeming God. And every time we have the Lord's Supper, oh, this week. Hey, by the way, we're going to have the Lord's Supper today. Did you know that? This week. Oh, yes. You have been my salvation, even to this point. Right? And so embrace those physical, uh, the physical reminders of God's redemption and God's emancipation. And the city of God itself, the church, should be a memorial. To all nations and all peoples of God's victory. An unmoved memorial. It doesn't mean not a growing memorial or a stagnant memorial, but we should be a, an unmovable memorial. When people look at the church, then what they should be thinking is, wow, what a great God they have. Look at how He saved those rascals. Okay, a few of us rascals, right? I mean, look at what He's done. It should be a memorial even to the world around us. And then finally, we ought to always be a people who walk our kids and the next generations around the walls of the city of God, reveling in His steadfast love. Not reveling necessarily in all of our walls and all of our furniture, but actually the great God and His steadfast love, right? So reveling in His steadfast love and telling, quote, the next generation that this is God and our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. We take what God has given us. We receive it. We own it. We pass it on. I just gave you a hint of what's coming up in the sermon. So get ready to use your hands today to receive, own, pass on. Okay. Any questions on Psalm 48? Yes, Alan. You know, you think about all the songs in Revelation, you mentioned Revelation, you read them and you go, oh, it's all rehearsing the goodness of God and what He's done and how He works on His people. And that's what the Psalms do as well. So yeah, absolutely. See? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's a bunch. And why does he have to recap? That's right. We're all, we're all, we're all thick as stones. Yeah. But it's funny because 
you know, what's the old saying? You know, we can get information around the world in a nanosecond, but it takes a lifetime to get it to that last eighth of an inch. I mean, we are so thick-headed, we have to hear it over and over and over and over again. That's why it's not, it's not really important to go out and proclaim new things. We can barely deal with the this, this old stuff that we keep hearing. I had somebody tell me that the other day. I wish it was a, I won't tell you who it was, somebody in our distant family. You know, I just think there's secret information in the Bible. In like every other third letter in the Hebrew, isn't there a message in there? Dude, you don't need to look for secret stuff in new revelations. You can't even, we can't even deal with the revelation he gave us. Right? And so we have to hear it over and over and over again. So yeah, the repeat, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do think so. Anybody else? Great, so next week we'll pick up Psalm 49. Okay, so then you'll know where we're going to be next week. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, thank you for loving dense people like us who need to be told over and over and over again of your steadfast love and of your amazing grace and of your your compassion toward us. Lord, I pray that uh, today as we embrace another historical reminder of your redemption and of your love toward us, as we embrace uh, the Lord's Supper, that, oh, Father, that our hearts would be filled with singing just like we see in Psalm 48, remembering that this is who you are and thinking upon your steadfast love. Oh, that our hearts would be filled with such joy and gratitude. And I pray for all of us that as we move forward, we would look for signs of your grace and of your steadfast love in our life so that at the end of each day, maybe, or the end of the week, we would look back and we would go, look at how good God is. He has taken us this far and set up, if you will, an Ebenezer to remember how good you've been to us. Well, thank you so much for this psalm. Thank you for your rescuing your people. In Jesus' name, amen.